It is a privilege to introduce this morning uh, our preacher. Dr. Vodi Bauckham is no stranger to this church, visiting with us last year. And as we were walking the halls this morning, I told him that we are just going to make this an annual event uh, to have him part of Coral Ridge in the new year. Dr. Vodi Bauckham is a pastor, author, conference speaker, cultural apologist, whether he's defending the historicity of the Bible or the resurrection, or defending marriage or gender or sexuality from a biblical worldview. He is helping the church globally think and act in accordance to the truths of God's holy word. His most recent book, Fault Lines, talking about the social justice movement and the looming catastrophe with evangelicalism is a best-selling book. If you do not have that book or any of his other resources, you can go to vodibacham.org or Amazon to order his resources. His wife, Bridget, and he moved to Zambia a few years ago to be the Dean of Theology of the African Christian University, a Christian university that is under the governance of several Reformed Baptist churches, and we are so delighted delighted uh, to have Vodi, also to have one of his nine sons with us, Elijah, who is here somewhere in the sanctuary. But let's give a warm South Florida welcome to Dr. Vodi Bauckham. Yeah, I don't often like to correct people who introduce me, but... I don't have nine sons. God's been good to me, but not that good. I have seven sons and two daughters. So there, there, there are two girls in there among those nine. Um, it is a delight to be here with you today. It's a delight to be uh, back with you uh, once again on this Lord's Day. If you have your Bibles with you, open them to Genesis chapter Two. Genesis chapter 2. And speaking of the issue of cultural apologetics and specifically in the area of marriage, I want us to focus on that today. There, there is a war raging right now in the marketplace of ideas. And it's a war that's raging on many fronts. But one of those fronts is on the front of not just marriage, but the idea of biblical manhood and womanhood and marriage. Really a biblical understanding of humanity, what it means to be a man or a woman made in the image of God. More fundamentally, there's an argument about what it means to be a man or a woman. Just let that sink in for a moment. We, we, we went from having an argument about, you know, what were acceptable sexual practices to, to, to then going to an argument about who are acceptable marriage partners and now to an argument about what is a male and what is a female, what is a man and what is a woman. And all of that 
goes to the heart of a simple, singular question. Hath God said? Because if he hasn't, then we are free to have those arguments and those debates and to move the goalposts from time to time. But if God hath said, then we're in trouble. And I believe we are. And I believe that because I believe all of the Bible and particularly the passage that we're about to read. Genesis chapter two, beginning at verse 15. In Genesis chapter one, we we get this beautiful overview of the creation week and of what God did. By Genesis chapter three, we already get to the fall. But there in Genesis chapter two, we we get a sort of, of, of retelling of the creation narrative from a different perspective. And we hone in, really, on that last day. Verse 15. In those first 14 verses, we see man created and brought and put into the garden. And now we get more specifics about that. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's interesting that before we get to this instruction about marriage beginning in verse 18, we have the instruction about the tree in the midst of the garden from which the man is commanded not to eat. God has given Adam a law, a law that is written on his heart. And then he's given him this specific precept about the tree in the midst of the garden from which he must not eat. And he binds him to perfect and perpetual obedience to this command. And he gives him a warning as to what will happen if he breaks this command. That if he breaks this command and if he eats of the tree from which he's been commanded not to eat, that death will be the consequence. And it is incredibly important for us to understand that right before God gives us instructions about manhood and womanhood and marriage, God lays out his law so that we understand the way things work. And that is that God is the sovereign creator of the world and everything in it. And as the sovereign creator of the world and everything in it, God tells us what things are and how things are to be. God is the one who creates and defines humanity. God is the one who creates and defines manhood and womanhood. God is the one who tells us what is a man and what is a woman. He doesn't ask us that question, nor does he give us leeway in that area. But God hath said, and the consequences here are significant. 
Because God says in in the day that you eat of this, you, you will surely die. In the day that you eat of this, you will bring death as a consequence of your eating. And there is a reality to this in the sense that physical death comes to Adam because of the eating, but there is another kind of death that is brought. The spiritual death. This death that separates man from God. And it is this death, this spiritual death, that actually makes man ignore the command. It is this spiritual death that makes man ignore the fact that God hath spoken, that God hath given us a law and that we are bound by that law. It is this spiritual death that causes man to rebel against God in the very definition of what it means to be man made in the image of God. There is no mistake that these passages are connected. And in our day, we are seeing this play out. There was a bill in Australia that in the last couple of weeks, I think, has become law. It's Bill C4. It's a bill on conversion therapy. You may think, well, that's, that's Canada. What does... Canada have to do with us. Um, You need to understand that this bill, C4, in Canada is based on an ideology that is rampant in the United States. You need to also understand that there are similar bills in the United States. But I just want to give you a portion of this. Not the whole bill, the bill outlaws conversion therapy. But I want you to understand the theological premise behind the bill. And yes, I said theological premise. All laws have theological premises. And I quote, the bill would discourage and denounce harmful practices and treatments that are based on myths and stereotypes about LGBTQ2 people. These include myths and stereotypes that the sexual orientation, gender identity, or gender expression of LGBTQ2 people are undesirable conditions that can or should be changed myths and stereotypes. To what myths do the creation law or or the the, uh, Canadian law, I I may have said Australian earlier. If I did, I I misspoke. I just realized that. It was Canadian law. Uh, To what myths does this Canadian law refer? Well, the myth of heteronormativity, for example. Specifically, the myth of heteronormativity. Now, if you haven't been in a gender studies class in the last few years, you may be asking, what is, what is heteronormativity? It's the idea that 
people are normally supposed to be heterosexual. That is now considered a myth. Or the myth of cisgender. The myth that people born in male bodies are men and people born in female bodies are women and that no matter what you think about those bodies or do to those bodies, you cannot change what God hath wrought. These are now considered myths, but not just myths, dangerous myths. Dangerous myths that have been replaced by scientific truths that should now govern us as we've become more enlightened. So, Genesis 2, 15, 16, and 17 give us the groundwork and the framework. And then we get to verse 18 and we specifically get into the issue and the question about men and women and marriage. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This is a very important statement. Because God says here that something is not good, but he says so before the fall. Now, what that means is that either there is sin before the fall, or that the statement here, it is not good, is not a reference to something that is sinful. And there is no sin before the fall, amen? Romans chapter five makes that very clear. Through, through this one man, sin came into the world and then death through sin. So there's no sin before the fall. So when God says it is not good that the man should be alone, he doesn't mean that it is not good in the moral or ethical sense, that it is not righteous, but that somehow this is not the most beneficial situation. And I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, this is interesting, and anyone who's reading this, especially any reader of the Hebrew Bible who sees in Genesis chapter 1 this pattern over and over again, God says, let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, it was good. Let there be, then there was, very good. So in chapter one, we see that rhythm and that pattern over and over and over again so that now in chapter two, when God says something is not good, our ears are supposed to perk up. Why is it not good? It's not good because the man is alone. We learned in chapter one that the man is made in the image of God who said, let us make man in our image. Let, let us, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, make man in our image. The triune God who has always for all eternity existed in perfect unity and harmony within the Godhead. This one God in three persons. God the Father, the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Son eternally begotten of the Father and God the Spirit eternally proceeding from the 
father and the son makes man in his image. This triune God makes man in his image and now all of a sudden the man is alone and it's not good. So God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who makes man in his image takes from the man's side the woman who proceeds from the man. And then proceeding from the union of the man and the woman come children so that the triune God makes man in his triune image. This is a theological statement. It's not good for the man to be alone. And so I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now there, the animals were there, so man wasn't alone in that sense. As though he was the only living thing that was created. There were other living things that were created. But here's the problem, verse 19. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So here are these creatures and he names them. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. God is not saying there's nothing else alive that man can benefit from. But specifically here, that there is a union that has theological significance. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. I believe so he wouldn't take credit for what happened. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, this is at last bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha or woman because she's been taken out of Ish or man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There are myriad truths that spring forth from this text. For the sake of time, let me give you a few of them. Truth number one, God designed marriage, not man. Marriage was God's idea, not man's. Adam did not come to God and say, God, I have an idea. Why don't you make me? No, that's not the way it happened. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. The man doesn't know that he's alone. Why would Adam know alone? Why would he know need? These are concepts that would have, he would have been oblivious to. He's created by the hand of God. He walks with God in the cool of the day. He knows nothing of alone. He knows nothing of need. So God makes him aware that he's alone and that he has need. How? By making him name the animals and showing him that there's no corresponding part for him. Marriage is God's idea, not man's. And then just to make it clear, God puts the man to sleep so that he has nothing to do with it, can't take credit for it, and won't mess it up. Amen, somebody. 
Can you just hear that argument? See, see, Eve, I remember, I remember the day God and I made you. No, you were asleep. <laughs> marriage is God's idea. Not only that, but God gives marriage its purpose or its purposes. The principle upon them is, principle among them rather is procreation. God has told man to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. There are a lot of things that Adam could have done had there been no Eve. Multiply, not one of them. Which means that because God gives marriage its purposes, chief among them procreation, God also gives marriage its design in male-female relationship. The two corresponding parts of humanity, men and women, designed for one another, designed by God, designed for God's glory. We cannot redefine marriage. And, and I, I, know, I know what you're saying here, right? You, you, well, you say we can't redefine marriage, but haven't we redefined marriage? No, 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 we haven't redefined marriage. We's, we've blasphemed the God who created marriage, but we haven't redefined it. There's another piece here. Because in this war against manhood and womanhood in marriage, we, there's also the war against the patriarchy. The war against male headship, which again is an assault on the God of the Bible. The woman is made after the man, male headship. The woman is made for the man, male headship. The woman is brought to the man, male headship. The woman is named by the man twice, once in chapter two and once in chapter three, male headship. And if that's not enough, when you get to Romans chapter five, the Bible doesn't say sin came into the world through one couple. It says sin came into the world through one man. Why? Male headship and accountability because of male headship. Again, when we read this text and ask the question, hath God spoken? The answer is clearly yes. And I hear the arguments coming. Yes, you say that, but isn't that why we've had all these atrocities against women because of this grotesque, archaic idea? No, it's not. Continue with me. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called Isha, a woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. This is an idea of complete equality. She's me. She's the same thing that I am. She came from me. 
Therefore, a man leaves his mother and father, holds fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You don't get more equal than that. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here's the great irony. In all the war against the patriarchy, here's what the feminists fail to acknowledge and hope you don't realize. Women in the Christian world where the Bible has taken root and shaped the culture are the freest, most prosperous, most protected women on the face of the earth. You want to see women abused? Female genital mutilation is not happening in the parts of the world that were impacted by the Reformation. Women were not burned on funeral pyres of their husbands in the Christian world that believed this text. Which brings me to the great irony of this entire war against the word of God. Nothing's being made better by it. Nothing's being made better by it. And worse yet, we see in Ephesians chapter five, for example, that marriage is not just for procreation and also for sanctification, this righteous outlet for human sexual desires, but it's also for illustration. This beautiful picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. Jesus Christ who gives us a picture of what real male headship and marriage is supposed to look like when he lays down his life for his bride, when he takes upon himself the sins of his people and suffers the punishment due to their sins so that their righteousness being imputed or their sinfulness being imputed to him, his righteousness can be imputed to them so that in this double imputation, He can atone for their sins and save them from their sins and grant them entree into eternity with the triune God and his perfect unity. Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust in order that he may bring us back to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what marriage is a picture of, which means that when we go to war against Genesis 2, we go to war against the gospel. And here's the great irony. Man eats of the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree. He's alienated from God and now deserves death, hell, and the grave. And his only hope is that God would be merciful and send him a savior. And yet, fallen man goes to war with the very one who's provided a way of salvation.
I do not stand up against this kind of woke tyranny in the areas of manhood and womanhood and marriage because I want my definitions to be the definitions. I go to war against this woke tyranny, number one, because there is a God who created the world and he has spoken. And fallen man does not get to disagree with the God who has spoken. And I go to war against this woke tyranny because number two, I love fallen men enough to tell them the truth. There is a God. He has spoken. He created man in his image. He created a male and female. He gave us the beauty of the marital relationship as a living, breathing picture of the communion within the Godhead and of the relationship between Christ and his bride for whom he laid down his life. May God grant us grace to believe this truth, to proclaim this truth, and to reflect this truth so that a lost and dying world can hear it, flee from sin, and find salvation in Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you that you have not left us to wander aimlessly in the dark. We thank you that by your grace, you've given us your word so that we might know who you are and that who you are or who we are in light of that. Grant by your grace that as our world goes to war with your word, we might stand firmly upon it that we might not waver in the hour of greatest need and grant that in all of us, in all of us and in all that we do and all that we say, that Christ might be glorified. For we pray this and ask this in his name and for his sake. Amen.